battling the relentlessly negative doom and gloom news media. It's the Nick Stenger Show. Coming to you live from the Stenger Family Office Headquarters, it's your host, Nick Stenger. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Nick Stenger Show. My name is Nick Stenger. For the past 42 long years, our firm, the Stenger Family Office, has made it our mission to deliver both clarity and confidence to help secure your financial future. Welcome back to episode 118. Thank you for following along with us since the very beginning. Been doing this for some time now, 118 episodes, but it's so important. We appreciate you coming back each and every week. Why? To give you the clarity, the confidence, the good news, the reasons backed by data, not blind optimism, but the reasons backed by data on why you ought to stick to your plan. Yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom going on out there in the market right now. Lots of reasons to panic and, and jump ship and and uh, and abandon your long-term investment and financial objectives. But it's our goal through these shows to to keep you on your plan. And, and that's what we want to do. Now, episode 118, 2023, mid-year outlook. Hard to believe this is week 26 of the year. Almost marks the halfway point. I think July 3rd is technically the exact halfway point through the year. But we are going to talk about where we've been so far in 2023 and where we think we're going for the rest of the year. S&P 500 already up over 14% for the first six months of the year. Kind of hard to believe if you remember the doom and gloom that was going on at the beginning and, and really the end of 2022, it was that, hey, you thought 2022 was bad. Just wait till you see what happens in 2023. It, it, the profits are going to fall out of bed and the doom and gloom analysts were saying, sell all your companies, go to bonds, go to safe stuff. There was a big flight to a so-called dividend safe stocks. And there's nothing wrong with dividend companies. Of course, we're big believers in them. But it was our advice, at least, was don't overweight because what if the market has a better year than expected in 2023? That's exactly what's happened. Now, out of the 14% that the S&P is actually up this year for the first six months, well, who knows how the year will end exactly? We've been up 14% before and then given some of that back in the second half. But despite that, it's really been the large cap companies that have driven the return. It's been the mega caps. It's been big tech, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, which, by the way, we did rebalance into. If you're a portfolio management client with the Stenger family office, we did rebalance you at the end of last year, not because we had some crystal ball that said, we were going to have this massive upside in 2023 with big tech, but simply because of our process. A lot of these companies were undervalued, and we started calling it actually strategic value. It wasn't that they were the, the traditional value stocks that you would think of, like energy or, or industrials or things like that, or materials. But it was more so that these companies had traded off so significantly that you couldn't ignore them as a buying opportunity. And, and so... We added a little bit to Apple, added a little bit to Microsoft, to Facebook, to Amazon, to Google, and that has served us well this year because we did not get overly pessimistic. Wall Street always works the same way every time. They come in with these bearish doom and gloom estimates because nobody wants to be wrong, and, and, and it's much easier to raise your estimates than to lower them. By the way, companies do the same thing. We, we get quarterly earnings reports every couple months from corporations and what they try to do is they try to tamper expectations they try to say hey things aren't going to be nearly as good as you might think so watch out 
and then they like to beat those estimates, it's far better for their stock prices to beat earnings estimates than the other way around. And analysts with Wall Street are no different. Be careful be before you buy into this doom and gloom media hype that says the world is coming to an end. I think 2023 so far, we'll see again, a little bit more baseball to play here, uh, but, but uh, so far in 2023, earnings have not been nearly as bad as people thought. Remember, there's two parts of a stock's price. There, there's, there's two metrics that you multiply together to come out with earnings and, and, a, and a price multiple on those earnings. And so when we look at stock prices, they're always going to be a function of two things. They're always going to be a function of how much are companies making? How are they doing? Are they profitable? Are they growing profits? And then multiplied and discounted by some sort of uh, uh, earnings discount that's based on the Federal Reserve interest rate, which, by the way, right now is sitting around 5%. 5% interest rates, like we've said the past couple of weeks, don't mean the world's coming to an end. But what they do is they reduce the value of future profits by a little bit, not by not, not certainly a, a doom and gloom scenario where the market completely falls apart. But certainly, certainly they reduce the value of those profits. And that's why people discounted tech so heavily last year. I do think and we'll get into this in just one minute that some of the tech rally this year has been overdone primarily because a lot of people think interest rates are actually going to be cut and pause. You heard Powell on the last Fed meeting. You saw our article last week, Powell kills the optimism that it's possible. Yes, the Fed's going to pause right now, but could come in with additional rate hikes later this year. That's the risk to tech investors. And that's why I've taken a balanced approach. I said, hey, don't go too overboard on, on tech stocks and especially high octane growth tech stocks. That's where we want to be a little careful. Uh, be in big tech, be in some of the big U.S. large cap companies that have great earnings and watch, you know, keep an eye on, on priced earnings multiples so that you don't overdo it. But at the same time, we haven't gone doom and gloom bearish like some of these people have said. Why? Because earnings have really not been abysmal. They've been pretty good. Earnings, have, they haven't completely shot the lights out, but they're doing pretty well overall. And remember, companies will go up, maybe in the short run, not necessarily, but, but in the long run, companies will go up as their earnings go up. So you ought to be a long-term bull on the market, maybe short-term bearish, a little cautious, a little bit careful. That's what we've done in the portfolio. But you certainly should be a long-term bull on the stock market. Look at 200 years of market history. Earnings have gone up consistently. It's not to say that there's not short-term declines or the earnings don't kind of adjust in the in in the in, you know from a quarter to quarter or month to month basis. But it's to say that over a long period of history, the best companies rise to the top, the biggest get bigger, and they do better, and they produce more and more profits. And if you're diversified and you own 50 or 60 or 100 of the top U.S. companies, you're not totally insulated from market declines, volatility. We know that. And past performance, not a guarantee of future results. However, we do know that you have a high probability statistically that some of the companies are going to do just fine. Most of them will. Some will go to zero. But along the way, you'll continue to clip earnings and those long run returns will continue. You ought to be a long term bull on the market. So let's talk a little bit about stocks and future profits for the rest of 2023. I want to go 
even a little bit further into the future than you might think, not just looking at 2024 earnings, because remember the market today, the market's always been a forward predictor of what's to come. So I want to look not just at 2023 earnings, not just 2024 earnings, but what analysts are coming out with for 2025 and 2026. Analyst estimates for 2025 on the S&P now are $273 in earnings per share. That's absolutely massive. That is not doom and gloom. That's not the sky is falling, chicken little run for the hills and, and panic and sell your stocks and get off your plan. You, you, you just cannot buy into this media narrative, this doom and gloom that says two to three years from now is, is going to be a nightmare. It, I, I just don't see it. And, and the analysts are starting to agree with us that earnings estimates are coming up, that companies are going to do just fine. The bigger question, though, is not how the companies necessarily are going to do. And this is the sad thing that I've talked about with the market, how much power the Fed has over our day to day lives is the fact that interest rates are going to dictate what's the right price to put on those earnings. Historically, S&P earnings are anywhere from 16 to 18 times future earnings. Um, so if you take the 270 estimate for year end 2025, you multiply that by anywhere from 18 to 20, you're going to come up with a price target on the S&P. Here's the real issue. The issue is if we go from a 5% short-term federal funds rate to a 6% federal funds rate, that 18 to 20 times dramatically adjusts downward in the short term. So instead of earnings being worth 18 to 20 times, maybe they're only worth 13, 14, 15 times. And that's where the value of the stock market in the short run comes down. Now, why is the market up so much? 14% double digits, strong double digits for 2023. Well, it's simply because people think that rates are going lower. They may not go lower in the short term. They may not even be lower in 2024, but certainly this, the, and you can debate this, but certainly people believe that, that, that interest rates are going to come down. And, and right now the current projection, I think for 2025, I looked at it this morning was about 3.4%, not five, 3.4% puts us in line with average, with historical averages. Now it doesn't mean that we're going back to 0% COVID interest rates anytime soon. Unless this, the Fed, which they could, step on a giant rake, and Powell has shown himself to step on giant rakes and to do um, not the smartest things with interest rates, if that continues and we do have a massive recession, then interest rates could go back to that 0% zone. We're coming up on this next political cycle where they certainly want that to happen. They, they want, I, I think President Biden would like rates to go to 0%, just like President Trump wanted them at zero. It makes earnings look much better. I don't know, and, and I don't think anyone knows, unless you can somehow transport yourself into Jerome Powell's mind and, and figure out exactly what he's thinking, Nobody really knows where those rates are going to end up. And so that's why I would be a little bit more balanced on my approach. Going into 2019, 2020, even with COVID, remember had that big collapse, 35%, but the market ended up 20% for the year. 2021, blowout record face ripper year, like Josh Brown uh, would say on CNBC. I like that term, face ripper. You've had some really easy environments to make money in the stock market, I think it's just going to get slightly harder. There's money to be made. There's return coming. It's out there. There's undervalued stocks that we're helping our clients buy. But you just have to look a little bit more closely than just throw everything into the S&P. 
cross your fingers and hope it works out. I think there's going to be a little bit more of, of the market that will catch up with big tech rather than big tech adjusting down to where the rest of the market is. So stay bullish, stay optimistic. I think there's lots of good things coming, but again, be balanced. I don't think you can just go overboard like you could in 0% rates towards the growth spectrum. I think you still need to have a weight in value and dividend paying companies. That's stocks for the long run, Dr. Jeremy Siegel, who we did, by the way, have out a few times for our clients. Uh, he is coming to town for us on September 7th. I will mention that September 7th, a lunch. Dr. Jeremy Siegel will be with us in Oak Brook at Gibson Steakhouse. Join us. Don't miss that. Uh, and I will take a second to say, come out to our open house event at our new Stenger Family Office headquarters in Naperville, corner of Deal and Washington, 400 East Deal Road. June 27th. Don't miss it. And uh, it's our open house. All of our families will be here. The whole team come meet us. Come see the new space if you haven't already. And uh, we'd love to love love to see you out. And then September 7th, we've got Dr. Siegel for an event. And then we are uh, just now working on and I was talking with with Bon Roth, uh, the president of our firm, my business partner about Investor Day, which is quickly approaching in November. So get that on the calendar, too. It looks like it's going to be November 14th and 15th. We're going to have another stack deck of speakers for that. Okay, let's wrap up with a few sectors and a few areas, pockets of the market that everybody's looking at and talking about. Now, these predict predictions are just my opinion. I could be wildly wrong. Um, this is just from the data that I've seen, that I've looked at, and, and what could be going on. And, and none of this is an, an investment recommendation. So, so just these are just my opinions and uh, where I see some opportunity. But I actually think housing and the real estate world in general on the residential side, not necessarily commercial, which we'll get into, but I think on the residential housing side of the equation, things are really not going to be nearly as bad as some people think. Remember how the media works. They love these people that come out every five to 10 years or, or however often and, and claim that there's a doom and gloom black swan event lurking around the corner. Just wait, there's another 0809 coming. And all these people who co correctly predict it once get a Netflix special. They go on a book signing tour. They have speeches and, and blogs and all this and YouTube shows and all the rest of it for calling the doom and gloom where they get it right one time. But if you listen to them consistently and some of these most prominent Wall Street pundits that are out there, they're economists, they're strategists that get the most airtime on all the shows are incentivized to be bearish. It's it's not that interesting to say, oh, housing's going to be fine and don't worry and, and it, we're not going to face another 08 and 09 scenario. It's much more interesting to go out there and say, oh, this is going to be worse than 2008 and 2009. Watch out. You need to panic. Buy, buy a, a, get a bunker in your backyard and fill it with canned food. That's much more exciting for people to listen to than what I'm about to say, which is I, I don't see a massive housing correction or bubble ahead of of us. Now, all of that to say, since 1987, the long run data on housing has been that residential housing prices, Case Shiller index, go up 4.4% per year consistently. We have not had that kind of growth, even that baseline 4.4% growth, until just recently. And so if you go back to February of 2020, which is arguably kind of the start of COVID, pre lockdowns, pre COVID, and all the rest of it, just now, housing prices have risen 40% in three, roughly three and a half years. That finally gets us back up to that long-term growth number, which is uh, just slightly above the 4.4%, but we're slowly getting back to that normal long-run residential growth rate. 
Here's my point. You could see housing prices in the short run correct about 20%, which would put us back in line with that long run 4.4% average. It doesn't mean the world's coming to an end. Now, there is going to be some pain. There will be some trouble ahead for some folks. There's no question. That's very sad. We don't want that to happen. But you could see housing prices correct about 20% to get back in line with long run averages. So 40 in three years is a little bit high. Um, so you could kind of go down maybe maybe 20 temporarily. But here's why it doesn't mean that housing and the bottom is falling out. People are less leveraged today as a portion of their income when you compare it to 08 and 09 than they've ever been. They're even less leveraged now when it comes to their personal residence than they were in the 80s and the 90s. And so the consumer is still in great shape. Yes, credit card balances are rising. Yes, personal loans are rising a bit. That's going back to more of the pre-COVID levels. You had this influx of cash during COVID where people paid a lot of debt off now that debt's kind of coming back to long run averages still though if again i look at the data and i just don't see this massive collapse lurking around the corner um, a lot of the problems in 08 and 09 where we weren't even getting credit checks in a lot of cases people were over leveraged buying three or four or five houses uh, with very little income to support it and then i would say the other issue was resetting adjustable rate loans where you get a teaser rate for two or three percent and then it jumps to seven or eight that has really it's not completely vanished but it's come down substantially i think housing is actually going to be okay now here's what could be an issue commercial real estate in a few sectors not just broad commercial real estate and, and i i see these reports coming out from these doom and gloomers that say uh, uh, commercial real estate is going to drop 40 percent if you actually read those articles and pull them up and go line by line through the paragraphs they're talking primarily about office real estate. Office real estate definitely is going to struggle. And, and what you're now seeing is you're seeing weaker office real estate owners face bankruptcies, potential issues, serious issues. And you're seeing some of the stronger players come in buying up their buildings and converting them into apartments. That's not something that happens overnight. There's not just this magic, you know, flip a switch and uh, and you turn an office building into residential but that is slowly coming um, housing could or uh, i'm sorry office could struggle until it gets in more of the residential space we definitely need more residential we are structurally underbuilt we've been saying this for the past three to four episodes and i think actually long term while you could see an office correction um I think broad commercial real estate still in okay shape. You could see a little bit of a drop off in industrial. Those are your Amazon warehouses, some of your, your bigger uh, logistical type deals. And part of the reason for that is business inventories are rising. That's a pretty good way to track commercial real estate in the industrial space, the warehouse space. And so you just want to be careful that Amazon is still producing a number of packages that they think they're going to produce. And uh, uh, there's multiple media reports. Jeff Bezos even admitted to it that they probably overbuilt capacity during COVID, thinking that people would shop at the levels they did. Some of that's coming back just a little. So again, uh, just be a little careful. Um, it's not it's not a recommendation to buy or sell anything, but it is just a cautionary sign of there is some probably um, downward pressure there in commercial versus residential. Energy, oil and gas sector is up 220% since the very bottom of 2020. Now, if you were an expert trader and a market timer and you knew when to get in and you knew when to get out and you could have uh, 
timed it just absolutely impeccably, you could have made a boatload of money on the energy trade the past couple years. Not a whole lot of people did that. I have a couple clients who uh, turned three or four hundred grand into a couple million, uh, but not everybody. Certainly, most people have not done that. And so, if you really go back over the past five years, including dividends, the energy sector is only up four percent a year for the past five. That's not a great return, considering the S and P 500's return has been in the double digits. These abysmal returns, I think, in the energy space have made stock picking a little bit more important when you look at these companies. Not all energy companies are created equal, and actually the majors have fared much better than some of the other players. If you look at energy, uh, Exxon, you look at Chevron, you look at ConocoPhillips, BP, and Shell, Exxon the past five years now total return with the dividend is up 38%. Chevron's up 25 Conoco's up 40%, one of the best performers. BP is up 20, Shell is up 26. Some of the other energy stocks out there like uh, Schlumberger, uh, uh, EOG Resources, Occidental haven't been nearly as good. And those three companies have actually produced either negative returns for five years or they've produced very little return in, in the one or two percent zone. And so you just have to be sort of cautious before you go out and buy the whole energy index. I, I think you need to be a little bit more uh, uh, thoughtful about what you're buying because there's some energy companies that have way too much debt on their balance sheet to support even energy prices where they are today. And all it's going to take for a couple of these companies to have trouble is energy prices to go down. I'm not saying energy prices are going to go down, although they are elevated. And sometimes when they're elevated, there's a, a slight pullback. P ratios on oil and gas stocks are dirt cheap. That is absolutely a fact. But sometimes when P.E. ratios, price to earnings ratios are low, that can signal a value trap, which means the only return you might get for a while is the dividend. So part of the portfolio for us, not a massive piece, certainly not more than five or six percent international. This would be China, Europe and Japan. China is obviously the biggest piece of this. Japan's a big piece. The eurozone's a big piece for years and when we do our due diligence and rebalance process we have the 25 asset managers in the room and we go through and we ask them all hey what do you think for the upcoming year what are you guys doing in your portfolios what's your opinion then we take all that information and make the final decision for years these top 25 asset managers 22 23 out of the top 25 have come in and said buy international and, and, and we, we think, okay, what does that mean? Well, that means you sell your interest in U.S. blue chip large company stocks that are excellent, in our opinion, and you go out and buy a European, a Chinese, or a Japanese equivalent. Now, it's not to say that there's not good companies in Europe. It's not to say there's not good companies in Japan or China. But I believe some of these, the, the policy decisions that have been made in those places the past five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, even going back 15 years, have really put them at a disadvantage. And, and so China, it, it, by the way, if you're a billionaire in China and you come up with a really good idea, if it's too good and you make too much money and then all of a sudden you say something against President Z, you disappear. And, and so there's not a whole lot of people in China that want to come up with great ideas. There's a lot of smart Chinese people but the reality is they have come to the United States to invent their technology to build their businesses uh, rather than doing it in mainland China. You've had the same thing for years now in Europe and Japan. And so Japan is a massive debt to GDP ratio. Europe has some similar problems some bad fiscal policies where they spend into oblivion. 
modern monetary theory, which we've talked about is a disaster. And so it all adds up at the end to just not a whole lot of growth. And it's not that Europe and Japan and uh, maybe China, but Europe and Japan, it's not that they're going to completely uh, uh, fall apart. I don't I don't agree with that, but I just think there's going to be slow growth, lots of inflation and not a whole lot of upside for investors. I'd rather keep you right here in the United States. That's a trend that I believe will continue. Okay, last piece of this equation, bonds. If you followed us now, this is going to come as no surprise. If you follow us for the past few years, we believe bonds are still and have been just an absolute disaster area for investors. We have urged you stay far away from bonds with rising interest rates. Remember, interest rates were near zero. And so the question was, where are they going to go? Well, they had to go up at some point. When you have a rising rate environment, especially when you go from 0% interest rates to 5 and possibly even to 6 down the road, bond prices get crushed. It's that teeter-totter effect, the inverse relationship. When yields go up, prices go down, vice versa. And I still believe that you can do much better in other areas of the market without taking on the risk that bonds have, especially in the long-term space. Now, let me just also add to this whole statement about bonds that if you are retired and you're a retired client with our group, we have taken two to four years, depending on your risk tolerance, depending on your comfort level, and we have bought some bonds. We bought short-term, low-duration treasuries that are paying 5%. We prefer to do it with uh, floating rate treasuries so that we continue to get increases. At some point, will we go out and maybe lock that in for a few years? That's the question. My opinion, I still think we're way too early, but I'm not saying don't have any bonds if you're retired, but you just got to be so careful that you're buying the right ones. And our whole team knows uh, knows this. We talk about this at least once a week as a group. Watch out for the target date funds. The target date funds have been a absolute nightmare for people. Uh, just came out with this article, investment news, uh, or the pension and, and investment news uh, article uh, that said ESG in target date funds has been an absolute disaster. And and so you've got a lot of lawsuits going on at a 401k level where participants are rightfully going to their companies and saying, how could you just default us into a target date fund with no advice? If that's you, you ought to look at the 401k. You might want to do a rebalance, call our team, give us a call, get in touch with us. And we don't even charge for it. We do a starter account at $1,000. That's all it takes to get in. But then we'll help you look at the 401k, the 403b, the 457, whichever kind of retirement plan you have, make sure you don't have too much exposure to these international stocks, these long-term bonds, make sure you're set up properly to weather the volatility. So that's really what I've got for you today on episode 118. Stay bullish, stay, stay on your plan. And again, I would be cautiously optimistic. I, 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 a couple years ago, I was maybe a 10 out of 10 on the optimism scale, 10 being very, very, very optimistic. And now I've, I'm not bearish by any means, but I've dropped maybe into the seven range, a seven out of 10 on the optimist scale. And, and so it's not that the, the, the stocks are going to completely fall apart. I do not think the market's going down to the 3000 point range, like some of these bearish Wall Street pundits have said. I think instead, we're just going to have more of the wilderness, a little bit more choppiness, volatility the next couple years. But when we look back two to three, four years from today, I believe stocks will be up. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for joining us for 118. We'll see you next week for episode 119.